Oops. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led it out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people. Um, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ebhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhiah, Elishama, Elida, Eliphalet. And when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. This is the word of God. Does. Please pray with me. 
Father, we thank you so much for this gathering together of your people in this place on this Lord's Day to worship you. God, we worship you because you are worthy of our worship. Your word tells us that you, God, have created us, that we are created in your image, and that we are created for your glory. And so, God, your word teaches us that all of us were made to worship, to worship you, the one true God. Lord, we're grateful that as we've gathered, we've been able to sing songs of praise to you. We've been able to offer prayers to you. We've been able to encourage one another through fellowship as we love and minister to each other and pray for one another. And God, now we want to give you praise and thanks for your holy word. God, your word is able to make wise the simple. Lord, we need that. We need wisdom. Your word is able to lead us to salvation, to find eternal life in your son, Jesus, and we certainly need that. God, we pray that as we now unfold 2 Samuel chapter 5, that you would illuminate for us the meaning of this passage. And that, God, you would speak to each and every one of us. That, Lord, you would minister to us. God, that you would offer a word of hope to those of us who are discouraged today. Lord, that you would offer a word of comfort to any who are grieving and sad today. Lord, we even pray that you would offer a word of conviction to those of us who are living in sin and need to repent today. God, we want to live holy lives for you. And God, we pray for any who have joined us this morning that are not, they're not a Christian and they're here today. Thank you for bringing them to this church today. And God, we pray that you would give them faith today. That they would come to find life in and through your son, Jesus Christ. So God, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for your word. We pray you would minister to us through it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. And please go ahead and grab a seat. When I was in school, we were taught in our literature class about a plot diagram. I don't know if they still teach this in school. It's been a minute since I was in school. But I would assume that in literature class, you're still learning about a plot diagram. I'll put an example of this on the screen. This is what I'm talking about here with a plot diagram. See if this comes out. You guys all familiar with that? You know what you're looking at here? This is a plot diagram. This is is trying to basically give you the skeleton of a story. How is a story developed? How do you create a story? And if you look at it, it begins on the bottom left here. And sometimes they just put beginning of the story, but if you want to get fancy, they put exposition like they did on this one here. Exposition. So they start, you know, the introduction and they start explaining the story. And then something happens in a story, which is the conflict. And that's going to send the story on a new trajectory. So everything's going great in the beginning of the story. And then there's this conflict that occurs and everything changes. And you begin going up this rising action in the story. So the plot thickens, things develop, the conflict intensifies until finally you get to the top of this diagram, to the climax. 
This is the high point of the story. This is what all the momentum is building toward. And it reaches a climax. And then after that, there's what's called the falling action. And then ultimately the end of the story or the resolution of a story where they kind of tie up all the loose ends and explain uh, how everything works out. And in kind of our fairy tales, it usually ends with, and they all lived happily ever after. That's the conclusion or the resolution to the story. If you were to do a plot diagram like this of the book of Samuel, which is First and Second Samuel, where we find ourselves now as we hit Second Samuel chapter 5 is right up at the top of the diagram. We have now come to the climax of the story. Really, Second Samuel 5, 6, and 7, some even argue chapter 8. Those chapters are the climax of the story. What that means is that everything that we've studied, everything we've read, everything that we've learned up to this point was trying to bring us to the moment that we just read about in 2 Samuel chapter 5. This is what it's all been working toward. And here we are at the climax. If you go back and you think about the storyline, this makes sense. 1 Samuel begins the story with the nation of Israel in crisis. This is a spiritual crisis. Things are not boding well for the nation of Israel spiritually. It's also a physical crisis. They have real enemies called the Philistines who are attacking them and are threatening their very lives. Eventually, in chapter 4, the Philistines defeat them in battle. They send them running for their lives. And so the Israelites begin to clamor for a king. They want a physical king. They want somebody who will go out and actually lead their battles for them and fight off their enemies and deliver them. They want somebody who looks the part. They say, we want a king like all the other nations. They want the guy who's tall, dark, and handsome. Head and shoulders above the rest who can fight their battles and intimidate all their enemies. And so the Lord gives them what they ask for. In fact, the name Saul, who is the first king of Israel, the name literally means, it's translated, asked for. Or asked of the Lord. So they say, we want this kind of a king. We want a tall, strong king who can fight for us. And God says, here, I'll give you what you asked for. Here's Saul. And they get Saul and it seems like the problem is solved. It seems like everything's going to go great, but it doesn't. Saul proves to be a massive failure. He's unwilling to obey the Lord. And therefore, he's incapable of properly leading God's people. And so, when you get to chapter 16, God anoints a young man named David, a man after his own heart, and says, this is the guy who will actually be what I desire for you. I gave you what you asked for, and we tried that, and that failed. Here's what you actually need. And David, this young man, is anointed to be the future king of Israel. But Saul won't move over very easily. He knows he's been discredited. He knows that his time is limited, but he begins pursuing young David. He wants to try to kill this man and retain his power on the throne. And all of this just plunges Israel into further and further destruction. Until ultimately, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is killed in battle by the Philistines themselves. Israel's arch nemesis come and they kill their king who is supposed to give them victory. And in that battle, his sons and heirs are killed as well. And eventually all of the legitimate heirs of Saul are taken out until finally the stage is set for this man, David, who is the Lord's anointed 
to ascend the throne and inherit all that God had promised to him. And that, my friends, is what 2 Samuel chapter 5 is all about. If I were to summarize this chapter in one sentence, this is how I would do it. God keeps his promise by establishing David as king for Israel's good and his glory. Again, we could summarize the whole chapter this way. God keeps his promise by establishing, establishing David as king for Israel's good and for his glory. Now, there are four things in chapter 5 that make it clear to us that this chapter is all about this. It's all about David being established as king. What are those four things? Well, number one is David is anointed as the king in verses 1 through 5. So we just directly see it. He's anointed as king of Israel. The second movement is that David's royal city is established in verses 6 through 10. Third, we see David's royal house established in verses 11 through 16. And then finally, we see David defeat the Philistines, the ones who had killed King Saul in battle. David goes and defeats them in verses 17 through 25. All of these things point us to the fact that David is being established by God as the legitimate king over Israel. So let's take these in turn. The chapter begins clearly telling us David is king in Israel because David is anointed in verses 1 through 5. Now, at this point, David has been a king for seven and a half years, but he's only been king over Judah, and Judah is only one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there are 11 other tribes in Israel that are not under David's rule as this chapter begins. He was anointed as king over Judah, which is his own tribe, and he's been ruling as king from a city called Hebron for seven and a half years. We know back from chapter 3, verse 17, that for some time, the elders of those other 11 tribes have been considering maybe making David their king. Their own king, Ishbosheth, had not been leading them well. Things were, were really going bad for these 11 tribes. So they were thinking about making David their king. That's chapter 3, verse 17. But now, with the death of Israel's king, Ishbosheth, the time has come. And so as this chapter begins, the elders of all of these 11 tribes put into plan or put into motion a plan to make David their king. They come to him in these first five verses. And they lay out to David the reasons why they want him to become their king. And first, notice that they mention there in verse 1, we are your bone and your flesh. In other words, you're one of us and we're one of you. We're family. We're we're kinsmen. You're not some outsider. You're not an enemy or, or a pagan. You're a Jew as well. You're one of us. They go on to say also that David, you also, when Saul was king, used to lead us out and bring us back in in battle. They're referring to the fact that David was Saul's leading general. He was the commander of Saul's armies. And David constantly led Israel in success back then. They would win battle after battle. And David became this war hero until Saul became jealous and removed him. But they say, look, you're one of us. You are a successful general. You've led our armies in and out in the past. And then finally, they point out that this was God's will for David. They say there in verse 2, 
The Lord said to you, David, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So they say, look, you're meant to be this anyway. This is what God has determined and God has promised. And so because of these facts, these elders of the 11 tribes say to David, we want to make a covenant with you and we want you to make a covenant with us. So we're going to commit ourselves to your leadership and you commit yourself to being our king. And they agree to this and then they go ahead and they actually anoint David as their new king. All that to say that David in 2 Samuel chapter 5 finally, and I emphasize that word for a reason, finally inherits all that God had promised him. He finally receives what God had promised him. He is now king over all of Israel. And this is such a great place for us to pause and to reflect for a moment on the significance of what this actually means. David was anointed king back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. That was the first time he was anointed, when Samuel the prophet came to his father's house, and David was left out in the field, and he looked at all six of his older brothers and said, that's not the one the Lord has, that's not the one the Lord has. And finally, David gets brought in from tending to the sheep, and the Lord says, that's the one. And Samuel dumps the horn of oil on his head and anoints him as king. David was a teenager at that point. In 2 Samuel 5, David is 37 years old. So what that means is that 20 years of this man's life have gone on from the moment that God anointed him as king until he actually stepped into and received what God had promised him. And family, during those 20 years, David experienced many highs and lows, did he not? During those 20 years, he was anointed, but he was constantly on the run and he was living in danger. Saul was trying to kill him. He was a fugitive. His life was challenging. So what that means is that God had a plan for David and God was with David, even though it didn't always appear to be so to the naked eye. If you were to look at some of these seasons in David's life, where it looks like Saul's getting the upper hand, and David's on the run, and he looks like he might die in the wilderness, you'd look at that and go, where's God in all of this? Did God forget about David? Is God not with David? Has God's love shifted over to Saul? You would start to question based on the circumstances in his life, but now we know that all the while God had a plan for him. And all the while, God was with him and was sustaining him, again, even though it didn't always look like it to the naked eye. And family, this ought to encourage us immensely this morning. Because in a room this size, there's got to be some of us that are here today. And and we're looking at the circumstances in, in your life right now. You're looking at it and you're saying, you know what? The circumstances of my life seem to suggest that God is not with me, or that God's plans have failed me. But David's story reminds us that things are not what they always appear to be. And David's story reminds us that if anyone belongs to the Lord, because they've put their faith in him and become part of his family, then his plans for you are always good, and he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. So so you can't judge 
God's presence or God's promises by the circumstances of your life. You have to judge them by what God has promised in his word. And again, if you're a child of God by faith and he promises, I'm with you and I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I will cause all things to work together for good. These are the things that God promises us. And so family, like David, you and I can continue to walk by faith, not by sight, until the day that God's good plans are revealed in our lives. So David here, at the young and strapping age of 37, I say it that way because I'm 38, I'm really close to this. Young, strapping age, he probably had more hair than me, I understand that. But, he's anointed king of Israel. He steps into this role now. But we've got to pay attention to the kind of king that God is calling him to be. It's right there in verse 2 for us. God says, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. Now this is really significant for David because this is a particular kind of king that he wants him to be. A shepherd leads the flock. A shepherd feeds the flock. A shepherd protects the flock. And David is called to do that for the people of God. And what's so interesting about this is that in the Old Testament, God himself was revealed as Israel's shepherd. Um, In fact, in Genesis 48, when Jacob, one of Israel's patriarchs, whose name was changed to Israel, and he had 12 sons who become the 12 tribes, when Israel, or Jacob, is on his deathbed in Genesis 48, he blesses his son Joseph, and listen to what he says about God. It says, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. So Jacob, the patriarch, understood God to be his shepherd. Of course, David himself famously refers to God as his shepherd in the shepherd psalm, which is Psalm 23. He begins it with this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So it's the Lord who is the shepherd of Israel, of God's people. But notice he gives them David now as an earthly shepherd. Of course, this does not mean that David replaces the Lord as Israel's shepherd. But it does mean that David now represents the Lord and he serves the Lord by shepherding God's people. David would lead, guide, and protect God's flock. In the New Testament, when God became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, we're once again reminded that the Lord is our shepherd. Jesus famously says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is our shepherd in Hebrews 13. Verse 20, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So as God's people today, the Lord Jesus is our shepherd. He's our chief shepherd. But interestingly, he has also given us under shepherds in the church who are to lead, feed, and protect the flock. In 1 Peter, we read about this. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders or the pastors among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Here's their job, shepherd the flock of God, 
that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, so Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so we realize from Peter there that pastors are not CEOs of churches. They're not running a corporation. They're shepherds of the flock of God. They're called to be gentle. They're called to be humble. They're called to put the needs of the people of God ahead of their own desires. And I think what's important for us as a church family to pause and to consider this and pause and consider our own pastors. Now I'm putting myself out there a little bit, but but it's important for us to do this. We as a church family should be asking ourselves, do we have shepherd leaders here in this church? Do Do we have men who are driven by love rather than things like money or power? Do you see men who serve you willingly here and not out of compulsion? Are we led by men who are gentle rather than harsh or domineering? If the answer to these questions is no, then we have a problem here and we need to fix it. We do. But if the answer to those questions is yes, that's what we have here, then we need to acknowledge that we're really, really blessed in this church and we should give God thanks and praise for providing shepherd leaders for us in this church. Now, what are you guys supposed to do with that whole little rant right there anyway? If you're like, no, we don't have those types of people, are you supposed to just like shout that out? Like, you're fired, pastor. You're not doing it right here. But again, it is important for us to sit and consider that. Is that what we have here? It's also important for us as we continue to think about future pastors in our church. There are plenty of churches that are more interested in having somebody full of charisma, a dynamic leader, a gifted leader, than they are concerned about having someone with character. And yet the New Testament completely inverts that. Character is king. And so as we consider those who might be called to serve us as future pastors, make sure, family, that we are searching for shepherds to shepherd the flock of God that are gentle and humble, not domineering or harsh. So we see here that God has established David as king over Israel because that's what he's anointed for in these first five verses. But we also see this because as we move on, David's royal city is established. Look at verse 6. And his king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. I love it. You'll never come in here. And then the next verse is, well, nevertheless, he took it. He came in. What's going on here in the context, though, is that David, after being anointed king of Israel, he immediately recognizes that he has need of a brand new capital city. David has been leading and ruling from Hebron, which is his capital down in Judah, the region of Judah. He needs a capital now that's more centrally located if he's going to really be the king of all of Israel. And he selects Jerusalem because this is the absolute perfect place to make his new capital. It's more centrally located. But beyond that, Jerusalem at this time was within Israel's borders 
but it was not occupied by Jewish people. And the people who actually lived in the city of Jerusalem are called the Jebusites. We're we're told what happened and what created this situation back in the book of Judges. Here's Judges 121. It says, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So during the conquest of the promised land, Israel conquered this whole area, but they left the Jebusites in Jerusalem. They didn't actually drive them out and occupy that city itself. Therefore, this would make Jerusalem feel to the nation of Israel a little bit like Washington, D.C. feels for us. See, our founders, they decided we should have a capital that is not actually inside any particular state. Because that's going to make that state seem a lot more prominent and feel a lot more powerful than the other states. So they carved out the District of Columbia and said, D.C. will be the capital of the entire nation. And Jerusalem's kind of like that. Like D.C., yes, that's within the territory of the United States, but it's not in any particular state's territory. Jerusalem's like that. It was within Israel's borders, but nobody really lived there yet. No Jews did. And so David strategically chooses this and drives the Jebusites out and makes Jerusalem his new capital city. Everybody We'll be okay with that. But the last thing about Jerusalem that's really important is that it was really, really fortified. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know it's on a hill. And it was a fortified stronghold even at this time. So fortified was the city that the Jebusites who lived there, they look at David and his army coming up and they start taunting him and mocking him. Right? That's what's behind that statement where they say, they basically are saying, even the blind and the lame could hold off your armies. Like, we don't even have to put real soldiers on our walls. We can put people who can't even see on our walls, and you still can't take our city, because that's how strong our walls are. That's how fortified this city is. So, Jerusalem was a great choice for David's capital city. But David is the Lord's anointed. And David, he sets his mind to taking this city, and all the taunts of the Jebusites won't stop him. He's a strategic military general. He surveys Jerusalem and he says, I got an idea. I'm going to send some soldiers up the water shaft where they drew water into the city. They'll get inside the walls and we'll overthrow this thing. And of course, that's exactly how it goes down. So he captures the city. He establishes it as his new royal city. He builds it more. He fortifies it more. And verse 10 summarizes this season of his reign. It says, and David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. David is growing in strength. He's growing in prominence because God is with him. The Lord is blessing him. Before we move on, I think the Jebusites are worth a moment of reflection. I mean, what's the lesson that you and I learn from the Jebusites here in this chapter? Well, the Jebusites had a false sense of security. Right, They were standing there from their city walls, from this high point, and they're looking at David and his army, and they're going, we're safe here. There's nothing this guy can do. There's no way he can actually get through our walls and defeat us. So they had this false sense of security. And because of that, the Jebusites had no need of the Lord's anointed, and they had no fear of the Lord's anointed. Instead, he was a joke to them. 
He was just the object of their taunts and their derision. They're mocking him down there. But suddenly, like a thief in the night, he came upon them and the Jebusites had a day of reckoning. I say all of this to say that there are plenty of people today who are a lot more like the Jebusites than they might first imagine. Maybe you feel very safe and secure in your own life. Maybe financially things are great for you. You have plenty of money and resources. Maybe relationally things are good. Your marriage is strong. You've got a great family. Your health is excellent right now. You just kind of look at your life and you go, man, I kind of have it all together. Everything is secure right now. And so you could say that you have no felt need for Jesus, who is the Lord's anointed. Maybe you're the type of person who even sees Jesus as a crutch. For weaker people. People who need some sort of help getting it all together. But that's not you. You've got it all together. You're strong. You're secure. You're stable. You've got everything mapped out and everything planned out in your life. Friend, if that's describing you at all this morning. The, 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 the plea from 2 Samuel chapter 5 and the story of the Jebusites is, is do not fall into the trap of living with a false sense of self-security. The Jebusites learn that no one can avoid their day of reckoning with the Lord's anointed. Because God was with him, he was going to be successful, and they were going to have to deal with him. And ultimately, every single person, no matter how young you are or old you are, how rich you are, how poor you are, how smart you are, how ignorant you are, every single person will have their illusions of autonomy and self-security shattered. Because every single person will have a day of reckoning with the Lord's anointed, with Jesus Christ. It'll either be at his second coming when Jesus returns to this earth to bring judgment to this world, or it'll be at your own death. Every single person will have a day of reckoning. Our walls will come crashing down. And in that moment, guess what? It will be us and him. That's it. And you do not want to be, on that day, the object of the wrath of the Lord's anointed. But thankfully, we don't have to be. There is another way. There's another path. And it's demonstrated by the only other non-Jew in our passage today. Hiram, the king of Tyre, who we'll talk about momentarily. Okay, so far we've seen that God established David as king because number one, he was anointed. And number two, his royal city was established. But now we see it's also because his royal house is established. Look again at verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom For the sake of his people, Israel. What is a royal city without a royal palace? The king needs a place to live. He needs his own palace. And in this passage that we are reading about, David's royal house is established. And guess what? The patron who supplies the resources for the house and the the people to build the house is actually a foreigner. It's Hiram, the king of Tyre. He sends resources and craftsmen to build David's home in Jerusalem. 
Now, Tyre is a coastal city on the Mediterranean, and it was north of Israel. It's in modern-day Lebanon today. But at this point in history, Tyre was a significant seaport. Most of the trade that was going on in the Mediterranean Sea on that part of it was coming through the city of Tyre. So Hiram and his kingdom, it was prosperous. He had lots and lots of resources available to him. And they had cedar trees that were world famous at this time because they were strong and they were beautiful. And so the cedars of Lebanon, or Tyre at this point, were used to build many uh, palaces and temples in the ancient Near East. And here we see that unlike the Jebusites in Jerusalem who mocked the Lord's anointed and taunted David, Hiram offers resources and the manpower to serve David. Hiram recognizes David for who he truly is. He's the king over all of Israel. And Hiram wants to be on friendly terms with David. You got to remember, David was a renowned military hero at this point in his life. And he had just defeated Israel under Ishbosheth. And now he just conquered the Jebusites at Jerusalem. This is a man on a mission. Likely Hiram wants to keep in David's good graces. In Psalm chapter 2, which is a famous psalm, the Lord warns the nations not to mess with his anointed. This psalm applies immediately to David, but it applies ultimately to King Jesus, the Christ. And here's the warning at the end of Psalm 2. Listen to this. This is Psalm 2, starting in verse 10. God says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. King Hiram of Tyre here follows the wisdom of Psalm chapter 2. He makes a decision when David assumes the throne in Israel to kiss the son, to seek blessing with David rather than hostility. And in that way, Hiram of Tyre represents a much better path than the Jebusites. This is the right response to the Lord's anointed. Seek his favor while it can be found. Because as that psalm ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. What does that look like today? What would it look like to take refuge in the Lord's anointed today and experience blessing in him? Well, the answer would be, it looks like this. It's casting off your false sense of security and self-dependence and casting yourself on Jesus, God's anointed one. Putting all of your trust in him, putting your faith in him, looking to him as your source of security and life and blessing. It's putting your faith and trust in Jesus. So David here is anointed. David's royal city is established. Even David's royal house is built. His family is multiplying in Jerusalem, which is a picture of prosperity and security and expanding power and influence. But there's one final piece of the puzzle needed to demonstrate that this David is in fact God's new king over Israel. And it's in verses 17 through 25 where David defeats the Philistines. Here's verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. 
So once the Philistines, who are again Israel's kind of arch enemies, once they hear that David is now king over all of Israel, they make a decision. They think, okay, we've got to go get him now. We have to try to take out David before he gets too strong and too secure as the new king in Israel. So they start searching for David, but he learns of it. So he goes back to his stronghold in Jerusalem, and he sets up his defense there. And he hears that the Philistines are coming, and they're marching on the city of Jerusalem. When he learns this, David seeks guidance from the Lord. Look at verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David, when he sees the Philistines coming toward Jerusalem, he goes to the Lord and he asks the Lord, Shall I fight? Will you give me victory? And the Lord says, Yes. So David leads out his army and with God's strength, he overruns the Philistines like a flood of water breaking out of a dam. In fact, the victory was so overwhelming that the Philistines are in retreat and they actually just drop all of their idols on the battlefield. That's what we learn there in verse 19. Or rather, where is it? Somebody help me here. It's 21, thank you, in verse 21. So they drop all of their idols, all of their sacred objects on the battlefield as they scramble in retreat. David and his men collect them. And in 1 Chronicles 14, we read that David has all of their idols burned. Now, this is significant because this is a reversal of what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The the, the battle that got this whole thing started that really put Israel in a place of peril. The Philistines had come and they had defeated Israel in battle. And they had taken Israel's sacred object of worship called the Ark of the Covenant. They had taken it captive back to their own land. And this was a terrible, terrible thing for Israel. But now under David's rule as the new king in Israel, all of this is reversed. It's the Philistines who are defeated on the battlefield. It's the Philistines whose sacred objects are captured. And it's done so by King David. Now the reason I'm saying that David's defeat of the Philistines is making it clear that God has established him king over Israel is because one of the things that Israel's king was called by God to do in the book of Samuel was defeat the Philistines. Back when Saul, the first king, was anointed king in 1 Samuel 9, here's what we read. This is verse 16. Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So when God gave Israel a king, it was in response to their cry for deliverance against the Philistines. And God said, the king is going to deliver you. But Saul failed at this. In fact, Saul died at the hands of the Philistines, the very people that he was supposed to destroy. They killed Israel's king. But now David is reversing that. He's driving out Israel's enemies from the land. But it doesn't happen just once. Look at verse 22. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. 
And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. As this chapter closes, we as readers are once again reminded of David's intimacy with the Lord and David's unrelenting dependence on the Lord. Even though David is facing the exact same threat that he just faced, he does not rely on yesterday's answers for today's problems. It's the same situation. Here come the Philistines. I'm here in Jerusalem. I know what to do. I just go out and destroy these guys. David doesn't think that way. He doesn't just redo what he did the first time. Instead, he goes to God again to seek the Lord's guidance on how to handle the new Philistine threat. I love this. This is David's dependence on the Lord. David not presuming to have all the answers. This reminds me in some ways of uh, a time I was with my dad years ago and we were setting up our Christmas tree in our home. We get the lights out. You know, you put your lights away every year and so you got to pull them back out of the attic and we get them out. We lay them all on the floor in the living room. Then we go to the wall, to the outlet. We plug the lights in and we have that dreadful experience that you've probably had before where you plug in the lights and they don't turn on. The string of lights does not work. And so we see that, and my dad unplugs the lights, and he says, hey, let's stop and let's pray and ask God to help us figure out what's wrong. Now, the reason why that's remarkable is because my dad was an electrical contractor. My dad's not sitting there going, now, I don't understand the science of this string of lights here. I don't know how to troubleshoot this. I can't possibly figure out what's going on. He knew full well what was going on with the lights. He knew how to troubleshoot the lights. But my dad's the type of man who realized that the difference between this taking five minutes and four hours is God. And so even though he knew how to solve the problem, he'd seen things like this and 5,000 times more complicated, hundreds of times in the past, he knew how to deal with the problem. His, his, his impulse, his reaction was to say, hey, let's stop and let's just ask God to help. Ask God to give us wisdom here and to lead us to the problem. And sure enough, it took about two or three minutes and the lights are working and we were able to string them up on the tree. But I love that. I love that dependence. And that's the way my dad's always lived his life. Just dependent on the Lord. Let's take this to the Lord and see if God will lead us and guide us and direct us here. And this is the way David operates. We see it over and over again in his life. Again, the same threat presents itself. And rather than just saying, I know what to do here, he says, Lord, what would you have me do? And notice that God gives him a different strategy. I don't know if you saw that. Look at verse 23. You shall not go up, which is what God told him to do the first time. Go up. David said, shall I go up? And God said, yes. Now God says, you shall not go up. Instead, God sends him around with a different strategy. And what we can infer from that is that had David just implemented the same strategy that he had implemented the first time, he would have probably been beat by the Philistines here in the valley. But David seeks God's will and God's direction, and then he responds and he obeys it. He does what God tells him to do, and there's a great victory as the chapter ends. Verse 25 really ties up the whole chapter for us. Verse 25, again, it says, And David did as the Lord 
commanded him. The big problem with King Saul, Israel's first king, was that Saul failed to do what the Lord commanded him. That is the reason why God ultimately rejected Saul. He would not obey God's word. What God's people need is they need a leader who will do as the Lord commands him. And God provided that for Israel through this king, David. David would prove to be a faithful leader over God's people. His overall track record is, in verse 25, and David did as the Lord commanded him. And as a result of David's faithfulness and his obedience to the Lord, God blessed David's kingdom. And in verse 12, we're told it was for the sake of his people, Israel. So David's an obedient, faithful leader. And God blesses him and the whole nation, all of God's people, through David's effective leadership. So again, if we were to summarize this whole chapter, we would say God keeps his promise by establishing David as king for their good and his glory. Well, we as God's people today, of course, also need a leader who will do as the Lord commands him. And God, in his grace, provided that for us for your good and my good, and for his glory. 2,000 years ago, God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Anointed One, to be the shepherd of our souls and to perfectly carry out God's will. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, here's what Jesus says as he came into the world. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago, he came to do the Father's will. And he did it perfectly. His obedience was displayed by perfectly obeying God's law. He never once sinned. And therefore, Jesus became our righteousness. But his obedience is displayed also by his willingness to go to the cross where he died for our sins. Notice the language in Philippians chapter 2. It's the language of obedience. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, even as he highly exalted David. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So family, we'll conclude here. In Jesus, we have a shepherd leader who perfectly leads us and nourishes us and protects us. A leader who will never fail and will guide us only into God's blessing now and forevermore. A leader who God has exalted for his glory and our eternal good. Therefore, blessed are all who take refuge in him.